hundred years ago in a Scottish seaside town. In a little inn on the side of the road, a group of fishermen were relaxing after a long day at sea, and as a serving maid was walking past the fisherman's table with a pot of tea, one of them made a sweeping gesture to describe the size of the fish that he claimed to have caught. And his hand collided with the teapot, and he sent it crashing against the whitewashed wall where its contents left an irregular brown splotch all over the wall. Standing nearby, the innkeeper surveyed the damage, and he basically said, that stain will never come out. It'll never come out. The whole wall will have to be repainted. Perhaps not. And all eyes turned to the stranger who had just spoken. What do you mean, asked the innkeeper. And the man said, let me work with the stain for a minute. Standing up from his table in the corner, he said, if my work meets your approval, you won't need to repaint the wall. So the stranger picked up a box and he went to the wall and opening the box, he withdrew pencils and brushes and some glass jars of linseed oil and pigment and he began to sketch lines around the stain and fill it in here and there with dabs of color and swatches of shading and soon a picture began to emerge on the wall. The random splashes of tea had been turned into the image of a magnificent stag with a huge rack of antlers. And at the bottom of the picture, the man inscribed his signature, and then he left, paid for his meal, and he left. The innkeeper was stunned when he examined the wall. He said, do you know who that man was? The signature reads E.H. Landseer. If any of you are artists or appreciate art, you will recognize that name. Indeed, they had been visited by the well-known painter of wildlife, Sir Edwin Landseer. The point that I'm making with that story is that God wants to take the ugly tea stains of our lives and not merely erase them, but rather turn them into things of beauty. Last week we talked about being $20 violins that in the master's hands could make beautiful music together. Today we're talking about being tea stains on a wall and through the artistic hands of our master can make beautiful music to the world or artistry to the world. I want to recap a little bit of last week's message because I want to finish it up today. But the major thrust of last week's message was to ask you the question, is God tapping you on the shoulder? That was the question I asked you last week. And it's the one I want to repeat again today because as I said last week that the call to discipleship is the intention of God. He's calling us to be his disciples that he might send us out to make other disciples. There was a process involved as the 12 went through from being disciples to apostles as we talked about last week designated to carry his message into the world and that I suggested to you that Jesus takes each of us through the same process, the same basic pattern. And I began that pattern last week, and I want to conclude it today. So let me just recap a little bit. Number one, we said last week that our call to discipleship begins with God's personal invitation. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus said in John 6, 44. 
So discipleship then begins with the subtle draw of the Father, and we're responsible to respond to his call. And last week, I likened that to the call of God being like a tap on the shoulder, so to speak. Are you listening? Are you aware of what he's doing in your life? Have you felt the tap? Maybe you did last week. I've talked to some of you. I know some of you have. What are you going to do with it now is the question. Because he's personally called us through his son Jesus, as Matthew 10. He personally desires us. We talked about that, that he really wants us to be on his team. He wants us to be his disciples, to go out into the world, to make others. And he has carefully chosen us, handpicked us. You have been chosen of God, Paul says, holy and beloved, complete with flaws and weaknesses, and remember the statement that had so much impact on me when I was first saved and I ended up getting, going into the ministry, well, going into Bible college to prepare for the ministry. When I first entered that endeavor, a gentleman had told me, Russ, remember, the Lord doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. Remember that? And may I repeat that it's God's sovereign choice of us that makes us his disciples, not our choice of him. And he's personally appointed and commanded us, we saw. We've been summoned, we've been called, we've been chosen, we've been appointed to go and bear fruit. Our call to discipleship begins with Jesus' personal invitation. But secondly, we saw last time that our call to discipleship is protected by Jesus' prayerful intercession. That Jesus is now in heaven interceding on our behalf and that if God is for us, Nothing can be against us. Is that right? And the reason is, is because Christ is not only has prayed for us, but he is praying for us right now. Remember, Hebrews 7, 25. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, meaning Christ, because he ever lives to make intercession for us. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. God is the one who justified us. There's no one who can condemn us. Christ Jesus has died. Yes, rather, he was raised. He was at the right hand of God, Romans 8 says, and also intercedes for us. Our call to discipleship is a product of Jesus' personal invitation. It's protected by Jesus' prayerful intercession. And thirdly, this is where we break off into new ground today. Our call to discipleship becomes a process of powerful instruction and radical transformation. Powerful instruction and radical transformation. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. I'd like you to turn there and let's familiarize ourselves with this text again. Because I did bring it up last week. Mark 3, verse 13. Mark records, And he went up on the mountain, meaning Jesus, and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out the demons. Okay? It's all right there contained in those few verses. He summoned us. He wanted us. 
We came to him and he appointed us so that we would be with him and that he could send us out to preach by way of application. Interesting word choice, that they might be with him. They were chosen in order to be prepared. Think about that for a minute. In order to accomplish his mission, Jesus didn't just appoint disciples to carry on his work and leave it at that. Because as they were with him, he prepared them. You cannot skip that piece. Basically, the disciples left everything that they knew in order to simply travel around Palestine, observing and taking in everything about Jesus that they possibly could. They walked with him. They listened to him, to his words. They tried to understand his ideas. And for a long time, these disciples did absolutely nothing but be with him. Now, to the casual observer, it might have looked like they were nothing more than a bunch of Jesus groupies following him around, not really knowing why, nor having any apparent purpose whatsoever. In fact, on more than one occasion, as we read the Gospels, we find out that they even seemed counterproductive to Jesus' mission. Isn't that right? For instance, they argued amongst themselves. They didn't understand the point of his parables any more than the rest of the crowd did. They rarely did much to help Jesus, and, and often there were incidents where they actually attempted to interfere with what Jesus was trying to do. They said the wrong things. They asked the wrong questions. They offered the wrong advice. They often did exactly opposite of what Jesus told them to do, and they certainly didn't seem to have much faith. It was not uncommon to hear Jesus say things like, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? These are Jesus' words. And to refer to them as, what was the common reference? Men of little faith. Men of little faith. Sounds a bit like you and me, doesn't it? Yet with all their spiritual inconsistencies, they were his chosen disciples. They were his. And they needed to have their worldview drastically altered. They had to follow before they could fish. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Following before fishing principle. Very simple. They had to be solidified before they could be sent out. In one man's word, words, they had to learn as disciples before they could minister as apostles. And that's true for every single one of us whom he has tapped on the shoulder. That's why it's so imperative that we be with Jesus. Are you with him? Are you spending time with him? It's imperative that we are with Jesus and that we live life coram Deo, which means before the face of God. To be with him. Every moment, every day, lived in the presence of God. Let me ask you a question. Do you live in the presence of God every day? 
That's a very simple answer. It's not hard. <laughs> what do you think the answer to that question is? Yes. It's a no-brainer. God is everywhere. You live in the presence of God. The critical question is, do you live like you're in the presence of God? That's a whole different issue. That's one to cause us to pause and reflect. And maybe even shake our heads no. Spiritual maturity, I'm going to make a statement now, see if you agree with it. Spiritual maturity cannot come without close contact with a holy example. Spiritual maturity cannot come without close contact with a holy example, and there is no better example in all of the universe than Jesus Christ. The disciples were humanly weak and spiritually inept. They needed Jesus. We are fools if we think that we can do life and ministry without him. We cannot do life and ministry without Jesus. In fact, in John 15, he made that very clear to us. He said, remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful apart from me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Go green. So at the youth group studying, it's all about being in the vine, right? You know what the, what the key word here is? The key word here is abide. Abide. Old school word, we should resurrect it. Abide. Abiding must take place to be with Jesus. There's a little booklet out there, a little book by Bruce Wilkinson called Secrets of the Vine. If you haven't read it, I would highly, highly urge you to get it and read it. One, one of the greatest little books that I've read so many things in there I've got highlighted that I need to meditate on more and more and more. And I picked it up again this week and read through it again. And it's just amazing the things that you know or you think you know and you tend to forget. You need to go back to basics. Let me give you a little smattering of some of the things that are said in that book. Principles of abiding. Abiding begins with spiritual dif disciplines such as Bible reading and prayer. Okay, you could have told me that, right? Yet it may shock you to find out, he says, that we can do these things for years without abiding. Years. After all, reading a book about a person is not the same thing as knowing the person who wrote the book. The challenge in abiding is always to break through the dutiful activities to a living, flourishing relationship with God when it becomes not duty anymore. Somebody once said, and I can't remember who it was, that you don't really ever learn or know that you're truly dancing until you stop counting the steps. When you're abiding in Christ and you're dwelling in his word and his word is dwelling in you, you stop checking off the check boxes and the chapters that you've read to get through that Bible reading schedule in one year. Not that that's a bad thing. That's a good thing, and I still do it. 
But it goes much, much deeper than that. Much, much deeper than that. Principle number one, to break through to abiding, I must deepen the quality of my devoted time with God. Notice it says devoted time with God, not just devotional time with God. Psalm 27.4, you can read that this week. It talks about seeking God's face and being in his presence. You need to set apart the kind of time that will build a relationship, not just reading about him, but getting to know him. Savor God's words to you. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of God richly dwell within you. Abide. Talk and listen to a person. God is a person. Keep a daily written record of what God is doing in your life if you're so inclined to do that. Lots of people keep journals, prayer journals. They're very instrumental. I have a hard time doing that kind of thing, but when I have done it as a matter of discipline, it's been very, very meaningful and deepening. Principle number two, to break through to abiding, I must broaden my devoted time, taking it from a morning appointment or whatever time of day you do it to an all-day attentiveness to his presence. That's the difference between a devotional and a devoted mindset. Because God invites each of us to be tapped into his purposes and power how much of the time? All the time. How could this work then in a busy person's life? Well, if you're thinking in devotional, it'll never work. But if you're thinking about submitting everything in your life, every moment of every day to God, it will work. It will work. A woman named Annie shared her experience. I'm putting away my groceries and the kids are tearing through the house with the bags over their heads screaming. How many of you know that deal? I just saw it out in the learning center today. In the cafe area. I can be a little frazzled, but inside, she says, I'm saying, Jesus, you are here with me, in me and all around me. I'm conscious of you. Thank you for food. Thank you for my noisy kids. I'm not always successful at this, she says, but I try to take Jesus with me wherever I go. We keep each other company constantly. That's the difference, little things like that. Gearing your mind, setting your mind. Setting your mind. Now, there's some barriers to abiding that we can overcome. Misconception number one, abiding is based on feelings. Misconception. Misconception. Communion with God is a relationship. It's not necessarily a sensation. So you don't have the warm fuzzies one day. Does that mean that you have not been abiding with God? No. Abiding is an act of faith. It's an act of obedience. Jesus said, if you have my commandments and you obey my commandments, guess what's going to happen? John 14, you remember? The Father and I will come and make our abode with you. You will be abiding. Misconception number two. 
abiding, we can abide in Jesus without obeying Him. Let me repeat that and remind you that this is a misconception. We can abide in Jesus without obeying Him. You can't believe the people that I've heard say this to me. Christian leaders that you would think would be mature in their faith think that they can operate in their own strength, in their own sin, in their own disobedience, and still be seeking Christ, still be abiding in Christ. Misconception, we can abide in Jesus without obeying him. You can't. You can't. You know why? Because Jesus basically says this, if you want to abide in me, you've got to go where I'm going. And when you go your own way, you're on your own. Jesus is not going towards sin. He's not going into sin. And if you are, you're not abiding. It's that simple. So many benefits of abiding in Christ. It helps us sense the leading of the Lord. Abiding helps us to tap into all of God's spiritual riches. Abiding gives us the rest that we need to bear a much greater yield of fruit. And abiding carries with it a promise of answered prayer. In John 15. All these things. In John 15. Great text to meditate on. For your life. Not just for this week. And pick up that little book. It will help you. I cannot believe Jesus' intention with us would be much different than it was with his 12. As someone wrote, his intention was not to teach them to be the best that they could in their own capacities and strength, but to teach them to be what they could only be through his provision and power. They needed to be molded we need to be molded. In the words of the late Peter Marshall, they were disciples in clay, and so are we. So are we. Have you ever thought about what they must have looked like to their peers? I know we've talked about this before, but it's good to remember that they were just ordinary men like, and women like we are, right? I mean, without the benefit of the Scriptures to paint the picture, how would they have appeared to us, Jesus' disciples? Would we have believed that they were capable of carrying on the ministry that Jesus actually began by looking at them? Peter Marshall again continues, each man was different. Philip looks before he leaps. Peter leaps before he looks. Thomas was a dogged unbeliever until the last minute. Judas sought regeneration through revolution instead of revolution through regeneration. How many people do that today? James and John wanted to get rid of the people who differed with them instead of getting rid of the differences so that they could get the people. You, had you and I been members of any investigating committee, we would have rejected every single one of them, yet Jesus chose them, Marshall says. Why? Because Mark tells us clearly why, that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. That's what it says here in Mark chapter 3. 
Jesus knew that they had to be molded and instructed and transformed. He wants to do the same exact thing with you and with me. He wants to shape and mold our character in the same general areas that he sought to shape and mold their character. So let's look at some of those areas. Number one, he wants us to learn to rely on spiritual wisdom rather than humanistic reasoning. That's number one. When we read the Gospels, we sometimes wonder how these men could have possibly been so spiritually dull. I mean, they had a hard time comprehending the parables, which I've mentioned. They missed the point of Jesus' teaching about his crucifixion, about his resurrection. When he warned them to be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees, you know what they thought he was talking about? Literal bread. Literal bread. Even after the many miracles that they witnessed Jesus do, when faced with feeding the hungry crowds, they still crumbled under the pressure. They, got, they still feared when they got on stormy seas in a boat with Jesus. They still got frustrated when they faced feeding hungry crowds and they still crumbled under the pressure of all of their peers despite all the teaching on his death and burial and resurrection on the third day, they still scratched their heads when they encountered the empty tomb and they wondered what was going on. They were so spiritually dull that they didn't even understand that they didn't even understand. They listened intently to his words, just like you are right now nodding their heads with approval, but often operated outside of Jesus' realm in total confusion, privately asking for an explanation later. How many times do we find ourselves walking that same road that they walk? We read the truth, we see his providence, we experience his presence with us, and then we fall apart at the first sign of trouble in our life. But just as Jesus, even after his resurrection, continued to teach them and point them to the kingdom of God, he also, through the Holy Spirit, never tires of teaching you and me. Praise God for that. That's because he wants us to learn to rely on spiritual wisdom rather than humanistic reasoning. But further, he wants us to learn to walk in personal humility rather than self-centered arrogance. That's the next thing he wants to do in us. Another hard lesson. Now on the heels about his teaching, about his coming, and arrest and crucifixion, the disciples argued as to which of them were going to be the greatest. Right? That's what they're arguing about. And Jesus rebuked them with this enigmatic statement that the first will be last and the last will be first. Yet even on the night of the Last Supper, as they gathered at the table, the same exact argument reared its ugly head again amongst them. And so he taught them humility by giving them a very personal and undeniable example. What did he do? Do you remember? He washed their feet. The Son of God stooped, donned a towel, took a basin, and washed their feet as a hired servant. James and John, they wanted to call down fire on those who opposed them, yet Jesus pointed out to them that that's not the way we do things in the kingdom of God. Ultimately, he taught them that forgiveness is the ultimate thing. And you know how he taught them that? He modeled it. He modeled it 
by dying on the cross and saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And we've all done the same things as those disciples. We don't get the message. We don't get it. It doesn't sink in because we're not with Jesus enough. Instead of humility, we exhibit arrogance. Rather than forgive, we aggressively attack those who disagree with us. And there Jesus meets us, pointing us to his own personal example of humility every time, doesn't he? I encountered this past week a great visual that drove this point home to me. I attend a pastor's roundtable down in Portland once a month, a discussion a discussion, and it's, it's with about 15 other seasoned pastors from all different spiritual traditions. It's quite eye-opening and very stretching. No, it's good. It's really good. I love it. Our lead facilitator shared with us something his pastor shared with their elders on a whiteboard at that roundtable. And he walked into the meeting, and he wrote the following on the whiteboard and said, this is our directive for 2012. This is what he wrote on the whiteboard. He is greater than I. In other words, he must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist said, John 3.30. That's great leadership, that guy that did that. That's great discipleship. For anybody who grasps that, that's humility. That's humility. That's what Jesus wants. Here are some other phrases that I wrote in the front of my Bible over the years that uh, we all should regularly keep in our vocabulary. By thy strength, Lord, thou didst bring us up from here. Moses said that in Numbers chapter 14, verse 13. David said in 2 Samuel 7, 18, Who am I, O Lord God, that thou hast brought me this far? Galatians 2.20, you all know that one. Paul said, Not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, also in 26, verse 39 and 42, we read these words. Jesus taught us these words in a, as to how we should pray, but he also used them in his own prayer to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Thy will be done. That's what that is. He wants us to learn to walk in humility rather than self-centered arrogance. Thirdly, he also wants to turn our emotional insecurity into a powerful faith. Turn emotional insecurity into a powerful faith. How many times did Jesus challenge their faith? Again, you men of little faith may have been one of his most repetitive phrases to them. If he were here today, I wonder how many times I would likely hear that. On a, on, a, on a weekly basis. How many times would you hear it? He wants to change that. He wants to take our emotional insecurity and turn it into a powerful faith. Fourthly, he wants to see our spiritual irresponsibility become an unconditional commitment. 
His disciples claimed that they would be willing to follow Jesus even unto death. And yet they all left him when he was arrested. When things got really tough, when the stakes got high, they all bailed. In the beginning, when the cost of following Jesus was relatively small for them, they left everything, the scripture says, to follow him and accompany him. They left their fishing nets and their fishing boats. And although it was difficult, it was not ultimately difficult. But in the end, when their very lives hung in the balance, the scripture says they left him. What a contrast. Matthew 26, 35, Peter said to Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then it says, all the disciples said the same thing too. That's what that verse says. And yet a mere 21 verses later in that chapter, in the Garden of Gethsemane, after Jesus prayed for them, after he was betrayed by Judas and arrested as a common criminal, Matthew writes these words in Matthew 26, 56, then all the disciples left him and fled. Period. You know, for many of us, the cost today is pretty small to follow Jesus. And half the time, we don't even follow through on those things. Like, now I'm going to get, now I'm going to meddle for a minute like not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together to encourage one another. Fellowship, worship, and receive the instruction of the Word of God, regularly supporting the church financially. Those are little things. Those are little things. And yet we see them as optional things. And yet the Bible says they're not optional things. Being available to serve praying faithfully, sharing Christ with your best friend. I mean, that stuff is nothing compared to laying down your life on a daily basis like some people have to do. What in the world would happen if things really got rough for us? The church is in, I think, for a major shakedown. And that's not my prediction. That comes straight from the pen of Peter. Look at Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4 for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Actually, you know, I, I would even back up to verse 7. It says, The end of all things, Peter says, is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Use your gifts. Serve one another as good stewards. Speak about the Lord. Serve the Lord that he might be glorified. And then it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer, however, or a thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Right? But then look what it says. Next verse. For it is time for judgment to begin, where? 
with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it is with difficulty that the righteous man is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Of all people, Peter, who wrote this, learned his hardest lesson here on this platform of personal commitment. Peter learned it. And he's asking us if we're going to learn it. You remember what happened to Peter, right? He's the one that said, I'll die for you, Jesus. And then Jesus said to him, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, Peter. And you're going to fall. But I've prayed for you. And when you've been strengthened and you turn, strengthen your brothers. Jesus prayed for Peter and Jesus is praying for us. We already talked about that. And for what purpose? Because Satan wants to sift us like wheat. Why does Jesus have us here on this earth anyway to carry out his commission and his commandments? And when he's done with us doing that, he'll take us home. We'll be much better off for it. But in the meantime, it's all about him and serving him and doing what he asks us to do. Fifthly, Jesus wants to see our human weaknesses overruled by his spiritual power. And that's a great one. That's a great one because we tend to put our eyes in the wrong place, right? We tend to look at our human weaknesses and not what Jesus can do with his spiritual power through us. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit. When did Peter turn and strengthen his brothers? When did Satan stop sifting Peter like wheat? When? After Pentecost. When he stood up and he preached fearlessly and 3,000 souls came to Christ. And then he ended up becoming a martyr for Jesus. He didn't flinch because of spiritual power. He wasn't looking at his human weakness anymore or what he thought was his human strength, but it turned out to be weakness. That's, that's what he was looking at when he said, I'll die for you, Jesus. He was thinking, I'm a big enough man to do that. He wasn't. That only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we don't know when that power is going to kick in until we face that charge. Jesus' disciples failed miserably throughout their training as Jesus discipled them. Yet only a year later, after Pentecost, they were filled with the Spirit and they realized what true spiritual power was. They knew it wasn't coming from themselves. They knew it. Peter Marshall, again, in Mr. Jones Meets the Master, writes these words, When they were with him, all the possibilities of change in them had been created, but the changes had not yet happened. What did change them? Not the crucifixion, not the resurrection, but the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost changed them. Not until these men were filled with the Holy Ghost were they changed. Not until the Spirit had come upon them in power were they changed. So that cowardice gave, gave place to courage. Unbelief became a flaming faith and conviction that nothing on earth could shake. Jealousy was swallowed up in brotherly love. Self-interest was killed and became a ministry to others. Fear was banished and they were afraid of no man, no threat, no danger. And therein, he says, lies our hope. 
We have not seen Jesus as they did. We never heard the sound of his voice. We never saw the sunlight dance on his hair or traced his footprints in the sands of Palestine. But, he says, we have the same opportunity to be changed because the same Holy Spirit is available to us today. Same one. And he's been sent out into the world to lead us into all the truth, to convict us of sin, and to be our helper and to be our guide. This is a day, he says, of little faith a few convictions, a day when men seem to have no great causes, no great passions. So in frustration, in disappointment, they are inclined to say, you can't change human nature. It's true, we can't change new human nature. But God can. God can. And that is why he taps us on the shoulder. Because he wants to change it. And he personally invites us, prayerfully intercedes for us, powerfully instructs us. He radically transforms us until finally, 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 he practically initiates us into ministry. Our call to discipleship ultimately will result in practical application. And it won't come too far after you decide to follow Jesus. Jesus sent out his 12 with authority to do the very things that Jesus was doing, right? In Mark 3, what was that? Send him out to preach, to cast demons out of people. To deliver people from the oppressor, from the evil one. The book of Acts records in detail that as they operated as their teacher had in the power of his spirit, people recognized them as having been with Jesus. They'd come full circle. Acts chapter 4 and verse 13 says that, if you want to look at it. They recognized them as having been with Jesus. Acts 4.13 says about the, how the people of Jerusalem perceived these apostles. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. You know what the Greek text says that people perceived that they were? I'll tell you what the Greek words are. Agrammatoi idiotai. Literally, illiterate idiots. That's what it means in the Greek. Of course, the word idiot in the Greek doesn't mean what we think it means today. It basically means unskilled, untrained, without public or official office. In other words, they were common, ordinary men. Illiterate in the Greek society. And that was true from their worldly from a worldly viewpoint. But if it was obvious to everyone that they had been with Jesus to do the things that they were doing. And the same thing ought to be obvious about every single true disciple of Christ sitting in this room. People should know that we have been with Jesus, don't you think? They should know it. And I submit to you that when we are much with Jesus, there is no question in people's minds about that fact. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Will be like Jesus. 
He sent us out with power and authority. He's left us to continue his work. Truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, Jesus says, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works, in other words, in, to extent and in effect, than these shall he do because I go to the Father. But they're going to remain here and the Holy Spirit's going to come here and he's going to be with you. And you're going to continue these works to a far greater extent and with more effect than what I did in the three years that I was here. But you know what? It must be done Jesus' way, not ours. It must be done in love, too. And it must be done by His Spirit. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another. That you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. How are people going to know that we have been with Jesus? By love. They're not going to know it by argumentation. They're not going to know it by arrogance. They're not going to know it by legalism. They're going to know it by the love that we show for one another. Listen, friends, the Great Commission cannot be accomplished without the Great Commandment. The Great Commission cannot be accomplished without the Great Commandment. You know what the Great Commission is, right? Go into all the world, preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. That's the Great Commission. You know what the Great Commandment is? Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's exactly right. We will be of little use to anyone until we learn that fact, that the Great Commission cannot be accomplished without the Great Commandment. Friends, if we're just giving people the gospel just so that we can put another notch in our soul-winning belts, we might as well forget it. Because people want to know you care. And that's why they flock to Jesus. They want the truth, but they want the grace too. And he showed them that. He was full of grace and truth. He didn't just give them the good news, and I've said this hundreds of times, he was the good news. He was good news to people. I love the author's note in the opening pages of Donald Miller's book, Blue Light Jazz. This is what he wrote in the opening pages. He says, I never liked jazz music because jazz music doesn't resolve. But I was outside the Baghdad Theater in Portland one night, Portland, Oregon, when I saw a man playing the saxophone. He said, I stood there for 15 minutes and that man never opened his eyes. And after that, I loved jazz music. And this is the key point that he makes. He says this, sometimes you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourself. It's as if they're showing you the way. Sometimes you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourself. Let me tell you, if you want somebody else, your neighbor, your boss, your relative, to want to love Jesus, then you need to show them that you love Jesus more than anything. Because when they see you love something, sometimes they need to see that before they can love it themselves. That's what it means to abide. That's what it means to be in Jesus. When you love him so much that other people find that so irresistibly attractive. I want what that guy or that woman has. 
I want that. Are you good news to anybody? Are you showing anybody the way? Because that's our mission, to introduce people to Jesus Christ and to help them to become his committed disciples. To fulfill that, being good news to people, means that you have been truly changed and it will not happen by your own determination. Only he can change us. We are indeed disciples in clay, waiting for the potter to make something of us. Tozer once said, it's change, not time, that turns fools into wise men and sinners into saints. It's true. And I might add, it's only change brought about by the master's hand that can turn our lives from stained, weak, and unqualified people into a thing of beauty. Landseer. You know, you can take a tea stain, throw some color on it, and make it a masterpiece. You know what we call that? We call that artistry. Longfellow could take a worthless piece of paper, write a poem on it, and instantly make it worth thousands of dollars. We call that literary genius. Steve Jobs. He could take a few electronic impulses and turn them into technological empires worth millions. You know what we call that? Brilliance. A quilter can take a $5 worth of scrap material and fashion it into a tapestry of beauty worth hundreds of dollars. And we call that skill. Babe Ruth could take a beat-up baseball, sign his name on it, and make it priceless. We call that fame. Chris Tomlin can take a bunch of words on a page, notes on a guitar, arrange them, sing them, and turn the whole thing into a heart-moving, life-changing experience with God. And we call that worship. Listen, friends, Jesus Christ can take a seemingly worthless, sinful life, wash it in his blood, shower it with his grace, fill it with his spirit, and make it the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's called discipleship. And that is what he wants to do with you. What do you want to do with him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, what an amazing thing you do with people. I'm so humbled, Lord God. We are so humbled and we're so thankful that you haven't thrown us out on the scrap pile and done away with us, that you seek to mold us, to recreate us, and refashion us into a new creation. Old things passed away, but new things have come. Lord, may we be willing to submit ourselves and surrender ourselves to your masterful remolding. We are disciples in clay, Lord. Shape us into the image of Christ for the sake of your kingdom. To your honor and glory, I pray. Amen.